So one night I was sitting around playing with Mocha because I love writing wrappers around Mocha, like to randomize order of test, the load balance, or repeat the same test to figure out flake. So I was playing with Mocha and I was thinking, how cool would it be to have like a little Mocha just sitting somewhere on the internet waiting, like already running, just waiting for tests. So you don't have to spin when you think. You just, hey, test this test, like run it. Like you're already there. And then when you finish, come back, I'll give you a second test to run. Like kind of like little Mocha worker. And that was a success, right? Like this nighttime experiment. And then we decided, well, Cypress is nothing but Mocha engine with controlling the browser. So we've written this way of running Cypress with API that knows all the tests. So every time Cypress finishes a spec, it goes back and says, do you have another spec for me to run? And the API can say, yeah, here's the next one. And when you're done, come back to me. So each CI machine doesn't just run all 30 spec files. Instead, each CI machine goes to the API and says, I'm about to run 30 specs, or should I do something else? And our API says, hey, wait, there are 10 machines already joining this group for this particular test run. I already gave nine different spec files to nine machines. You're number 10, you run number 10 spec. And we all keep this history, right, of test runs so we can optimize the order so it's optimal. But it all became just like as an experiment around like spinning and running tests as fast as possible. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode of JS Party is brought to you by Rollbar. Deploy with confidence more often, spend less time worrying, and more time on improving your code. You can feel safe knowing every error is reported in real time with Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. Help us spread the word, and we'll help you dress to impress with some JS Party swag. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, blog about the show, or personally recommend it to a friend, and let us know by emailing jsparty at changelog.com. On November 1st, we'll select all emails, order by random, limit one, and ship you that free shirt. Okay, let's get into it. Hey. It's party time, y'all. You know what time it is. It's JS party time, and we are here for another exciting edition. Today, I am joined by two of my internet friends. Amel Hussein is here. What's up, Amel? Hey, everyone. And we're talking testing, so you know Chris Hiller is in the house. What's up, Chris? Hello. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Just go ahead and shift that to your locale and apply it as necessary. We're also joined by a special guest, Dr. Gleb Bakhmatov, a PhD and a JavaScript ninja. I'm going to stop introing Gleb and I'm going to let Amel intro Gleb. Yeah. Go for it, Amel. Thanks for passing the mic. Jared is basically sparing uh, me going into a super long soliloquy, so he's just passing on the mic. Yeah. But my love for Gleb is very real and it runs very deep uh, in the sense that I've known for Gleb for, I don't know, many, many years now, and I kind of met him as a very wide-eyed, eager young woman who was just very excited about, you know, writing software, and um, I think I was at a conference where you did a talk, like in 2013 or 2012 or something like that, 
And Gleb has just been someone who's continually kind of pushed a lot of great packages in the open source community. He's, he's has a wonderful blog. He's constantly teaching and learning in the open and really kind of has, I think, pioneered uh, end-to-end testing uh, like practices with like some of the leadership that he's had in Cyprus. And so just Gleb is just like just an all-around wonderful person. And we're super like lucky to have you here today. And also just we're lucky to have you as like a web community. So thank you, Dr. Bahmatov. Always a fangirl, forever and ever. So happy to be friends now, not just a fan, you know. Thank you, Mal. And now it's a party, right? <laughs> That's right. You are way too kind to me, right? When you said you met me as a wide-eyed, you know, young as a... Was I ever young or was I ever <laughs> wide-eyed? I was like, oh, God. she's talking about herself, right? <laughs> when I think of Amal, it's like, oh. It tipped you off when she said young woman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But even then, I had my doubts. (laughs) I'm so close on this one. Okay. You know, 50-50, but then... uh, No, like, when you talk about Amal, you you now talk about, like, former engineer of, like, NPM, right? And now Indigo Agriculture, right? I can not not picture you not being an expert, Amal, in Boston. Aw, you're so sweet. You're so kind. Um, but you know what? I, I can't say I was born this way, but you know, I'll take the compliment. <laughs> she was born, maybe she was born with it, you know? That's right. Just, just came out of the womb, like, well, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Put that on a t shirt. Actually, yeah. whenever Amal says, well, actually, she's Amal explaining, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I tend to do that a lot. I tend to do that a lot. Uh, but yeah, you know, did you know that that variable is leaking into your global scope? <laughs> Yeah. I no. feel like we need a soundboard, you know, for a male splaining. Like whenever she starts to do it, we can just like ding her on it or something like yeah, that. Yeah, you, you can. Yeah, people could also collect <laughs> points. We could start a whole subreddit on this. Yeah, but anyways, yeah. I'm not gonna bait the end. Let's not bait the internet. I'm gonna take that back. <laughs> I can only imagine uh, a male uh, explaining someone like the scope, the lexical scope in JavaScript, and, and someone says, "Ma'am, this is Wendy's." You know. <laughs> <laughs> Well played. Well played. So, Gleb, tell us how you got here. So, we were very excited to have you on the show. But why are we excited to have you on the show? Do you have any idea? Can you give us the background of what, why we're all so happy to have you here? Well, according to Amal, you know, testing is important, right? And I think Chris agrees, and that's why you know, he yeah. puts so much effort into Mocha <laughs> Jeff, right? And Mocha is my favorite unit testing framework. Um, Cypress is built on top of Mocha engine, right? When, whenever we test Cypress itself and like all the little like parts of the code, we only use Mocha. We, we could never switch to Jest or Ava because Mocha just works and it's just well-designed and it works very well. Uh, so for me, the testing is always something I was interested in. And, and not just testing, right? Testing is just like one solution to a problem. And the problem is, quality software mm. right like people don't come to you and say hey can you test this no people come to you because they say my application is not working or i suspect it's not working as good as it could be it doesn't work for some users what can we do and then you start kind of thinking about it and testing is part of an answer but this is a huge huge pet peeve of mine people think like oh we you're writing uh, npm package or some code no 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 i'm trying to solve a problem and writing code is part of a solution and usually it's not even the most important part right mm. 
And, and this goes to like um, Amal, what you want to talk about, right? Which is like the blog post I've written about sprint planning. A lot of times we plan features and bug fixes, right? And we're like, for next two weeks, I'm going to do this, that, and this. And I usually say, no, like for next couple of days, what problems are we trying to solve, right? What is the description of a bug? And what's the underlying thing that users are struggling with? And the solution in probably three quarters of a case, like 75%, it's not writing software. It's updating documentation. It's making documentation discoverable. It's writing a complete recipe. It's making a tutorial. Sometimes a solution to a problem could be just a tweet, right? If someone like asks a question. Mm. And writing software probably is the last thing you, you want to do. And writing more tests is probably is a good thing to do, but it's not my kind of go-to thing. So when you want to talk about testing, I'll flip the script on you, Amal, and I'll say, let's talk about life. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, it's really funny you say that because I always see test code as first-class citizen. I, you know, I for a production application, I don't consider it second-class at all. Like, I think your tests are absolutely first-class and code without tests is incomplete code for me in a production context. Um, I think what's also really interesting is your reference to Mocha because I feel like so many patterns in JavaScript have just been kind of, they're echoes of each other, right? I mean, you look at jQuery and how it's declarative API shaped so many other libraries from Lodash, Lodash to like, you know, just Even just like, yeah, just like requests, mm-hmm. right? You look at re- requests, yeah. like M- Mikhail's, um, I can never pronounce his name, actually. How do I it's pronounce It's just Michael. It just spells M- Michael. strange. I, I, always, I always pronounce it Mikhail, but I'm like, that's not right. I'm pretty sure. It's the strangest spelling it's, of Michael that there is. Okay. M-I-K-E-A-L. Yeah. But it's just Michael. Yeah. It's like fun parents, Michael. <laughs> that's what so, he says. My parents Michael. were hippies or something. Is this, is yeah. this, that's his own explanation for that. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we're going to spell it differently, but anyways. Um, exactly. <laughs> so, but we so mean, mean well, right? Well, meanwhile, yeah, exactly. of course. Always, always. So request is something that also, like, I feel like if it wasn't for that package, like, could we ever have, like, such clean patterns, like promises and um, async await? And, like, there's just so many, like, good patterns that we have in Node from that library, you know? And I think, like, for me, Cypress is, like, jQuery meets Mocha meets, like, request meets. There's just so many echoes of, like, other packages that have like heavily influenced our community, you know? And so it's just so nice to kind of see the uh, continuation of like standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and with every kind of push in the ecosystem. So. Yeah. Gleb, give the listeners a Cypress 101. What's the skinny real quick so we're all on the same page? So you want to test your application just like a real user would use your web application. You want to open your browser. You want to visit a URL. Then you want to find maybe a button and click on it, and maybe a pop-up appears, right? So that's what you would write to your user if you were testing it manually, right? Open your URL, find a button with this label, click on it, check if a pop-up appears. So when Brian Mann created Cypress, he created an end-to-end testing tool for anything that runs in the browser that kind of mimics the same approach, where Cypress spawns a real browser that it finds on your system or Electron browser, visits the actual URL, finds a button, and then clicks on it. But the key point there is that we're trying to mimic how a real user uses your site. 
So for example, when you want to click on a button, you don't want to just click on the HTML element that you find. You want to first check if button is visible. Right. So if your page is like very super tall, you want to scroll to that button to be in a viewport and then click on it. And then you also don't want to just blindly click on a button if it's disabled. So we check if this button is actionable, like not disabled, not covered by any other you know, elements on the page, because the real user would not be able to do that. So we work very hard to kind of take what you would write to a user and translate it into intelligent easy to understand, flake-less uh, test commands, and when Cypress just executes and shows you everything and so on. So we're trying to automate end-to-end testing, make it fun, make it a nice experience, and make it first-class experience where you actually could write end-to-end tests first before you write actual software because you can mock everything, you can stop network calls, everything. If you, if you don't have a backend yet, no problem. You can still write the test, Fill your front end, make sure the test passes, and after that, maybe turn on the back end and proceed. So that's like one hour. Main purpose in life. <laughs> if go. we can limit ourselves <laughs> to, just, to just this. So I apologize. I haven't actually had the occasion to use Cypress because I don't normally work on the front end. But how does, and in the past, I have used like Selenium type tools and um, you know web driver things and I get the impression that one of the problems that Cypress is solving is like it can be really difficult to get that set up um, and configured correctly and I imagine Cypress eases some of that pain but I guess what I'm curious about then is of course you have your test frameworky stuff like your suites and, and, and whatever and your tests and your hooks, I assume. But then you have this other API that, you know, performs these actions in the browser, right? Right. And that API is going to be, it's, you have like a different philosophy then versus something like how you would use Selenium to like, you know, XPath and all that crap. How does that differ? So Chris, uh, two things, right? One is the difficulty of setting up, right? If you're setting up Selenium or something, you have to install specific things, install specific drivers, right? You have to jump through a bunch of hoops before you can write your first test. Yep. With Cypress, you can start the same way you would start with Mocha. So with Mocha, you do like npm install Mocha or yarn add dash d Mocha, and then you're good to go. So the same with Cypress. It's npm installation, npm install Cypress or yarn add Cypress, and that's it. There is nothing else to configure. It already comes with its Electron-based test runner, which includes Electron.js browser. If it opens and finds other browsers on your system, it will show you the list. So you can like select Firefox or Edge or Chrome, whatever you have there, and run those browsers. So, But then it's like, what's the API for actually writing tests? And in that case, everything is chained of a global object called Side like CY. So you can, for example, if you want to visit the site, you write site.visit, right? And you would go to that URL. If you want to you know, find an element by selector, you would say site.get and then CSS selector. And we prefer CSS selectors because that's what you see in DevTools. And when you run Cypress Test, a real browser pops up, you, you pop DevTools just like normally you would, right? 
And when you see an element, you would just copy its selector and put it inside that get command, and it would just find the element. And then if you want to click, you just chain it. So you say get selector for a button, for example, and then dot click because every command finds element and then passes it along to the next command. And the best thing about simplicity is that when you, commands are running, you have your website iframed, and we can talk about technical thing there. But on the left, you see all the commands from the test, like all the things that you wrote in your spec file, like site.visit, site.get.click, they actually reflected in the UI. So Cypress has its own UI while it's running, and you see every command and parameters while the test is running right next to it. So you'll see your website being loaded and then buttons discovered and clicked and the application might do something in response. And the best thing after that is when you go back and the test has finished and you go back to those commands in the UI, when you hover or click on each one, all of a sudden you'll see that application restored. Like we literally take dumb snapshots every time we see a command has changed something. We restore the dumb snapshot. So you see how your application looked at that particular moment when that command executed. So you'll understand like which button we clicked because it's highlighted there. When you click on something and something appears, we show you before and after state of your DOM. So you know what application has done in response to that test command. So that kind of time traveling debugger and seeing everything and being able to open DevTools and, and the application running. I think it makes it special. And right now, there is a huge kind of like a, a waterfall or, or a dam broke, right? So everyone who's anyone in the world is writing their own end-to-end -end testing tools, right? It's not just Selenium or WebDriver or Nightmare. Now you have Puppeteer from Google. You have Playwright from Microsoft. I'm sure Apple has some secret thing, you know, iOS. Yeah. They need a, a good name, right? Something like iOS Clown or something, <laughs> right? You have Jest, uh, but they you can run with Puppeteer in conjunction. All those tools are great. Everything is fine, right? There is plenty of empty, you know, room to grow for in end-to-end -end testing. But all those tools they run the test runner outside the browser. So when you use, let's say, a Selenium command, like get me this element by selector, and then click on it. These are two different commands sent to the browser from external test runner. And once they arrive, right, let's say you find an element, you arrive, you find the reference, come back, then you send another command, like click on the element you found. Every time you go and try to click, well, at that point, the element might be already gone, might be disabled, right, because application is live. And so by the time you try to click, well, the element is gone or now is like read-only or covered by something else and the test randomly crashes and that's why you have flake. So Cypress, by running things in an iframe and having all the tests in another iframe but inside the same event loop, can find a button, check all those things, and if all of things passing, click on it. And if it not passing if element is covered by something or is read-only or disabled well cypress just retries waiting right there in event loop and then when it notices the button is no longer covered it can click and everything is fine and you don't have to put weights and all those things and it's only possible because we execute code from the test runner 
right inside the browser. So that's how we are different from everyone else in the game right now. That's incredible. I don't know if Chris is uh, quiet because his jaw is on the floor, but uh, <laughs> I'll give you a minute to pick up your jaw, Chris. But it's this intelligent functional runner, you know, like functional test runner. That's a little bit more than Selenium because it's not just this bot that's clicking stuff. It's like you have all of the intelligence of like browser APIs and then just kind of, you know, all this logic around knowing when you're doing something async and when it should retry. And it's just, I don't know, it's just like intelligent test runner in a box is Cypress. What's up, party people? I want to introduce AWS Amplify as a new sponsor here at JS Party. Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enable developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework and tech of choice. Amplify is built to make front-enders successful because you can use your existing skill set to build full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around back-end, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. Amplify simplifies all of that. Amplify gives you easy access to hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Check the link in the show notes for details or head to awsamplify.info slash dsparty. Again, awsamplify.info slash dsparty. when we talk about Cypress, it's an interesting thing because it's both an open source project and it's a business. It's a test runner. It's a dashboard. So there's kind of these multiple facets to the project. And it's probably hard for people just coming to Cypress to know like what part of the project do I interact with and what are the implications? So did Cypress start off as a business and became open source or did it start off open source and become a business? Tell us that story. Well, we're still trying to discover what we are, really, which I think we'll never finish. Uh, yes, it's nice to be able to make a living of something you like. Well said. Right? And that's how Cypress started, right? So imagine a developer, Brian Mann, who is absolutely incredible professional, and he was doing podcasts, and he was doing a book about, uh, I think, backbone and Rails development. And when you do a book, right, or a series of uh, workshops, you, you get to the part where you have to explain how to do testing. And so he looked around, and there was nothing easy enough to explain and not have people like, huh, what? So he decided to write, like every good developer, he, he decides to write his own tool <laughs> for himself, right, so that he can test the things that he's explaining. And so at that time, you know, Electron became popular. So there was some nifty technical tricks he could do to actually take Electron browser, load the site that he wants to test, and, and then be able to control it, right, in framework-independent way. So then he thinks, well, this is a great tool. Can I make a living working on it, right, which is a very, very hard problem to solve. And so he approaches companies, right? Say, hey, I have this great tool. You know, if you pay me a license fee, 
then you can use the tool to write your end-to-end tests, and it's so much better than anything you're currently doing. And most of the companies tell him wholeheartedly, no. And you know why? Because if a startup approaches you and says, hey, invest time using our private tool to do something that's like integral part of your pipeline, what happens if that startup goes away, right? Just falls or raises the price 10x. Well, you already invested so much time, you either pay 10x or you abandon all that effort and the knowledge and all the things, right? So trying to convince someone as a startup, hey, use my tool and adapt it is super difficult. So especially with you know competition from you know other open source tools like Selenium that are not going anywhere. And so then when I got there after using the tool in private beta for a year, we've decided to actually do something else. We decided, okay, we're gonna open source the whole test runner, like no limitations, no like light version versus full pro version. No, no, the whole thing. You wanna run your test, you have a tool, fork it, you know, keep an archive around. If we fold, no problem, the documentation, everything is there already, right? Like you can keep writing your tests, keep running them for as long as the universe is alive, right? Until we all kind of dissipate in a black hole. So that was nice. Then adoption like shut up, right? Because the tool is actually like objectively a good solution to the testing problem. No conflicts of interest here. No conflicts, right? So 99% of the time <laughs> I'm on a podcast or even during Cypress workshops, 99% of the time, I don't try to sell you anything, really. I only talk about open source tool, right? But then we needed something to actually earn money. So we tried like rubbing banks, uh, forgery. You know, it's difficult to, to make a living, actually, you know, especially, you know, in Atlanta and Boston. Like people are smart around these areas, right? I could never, you know. Anyway, but we decided, okay, you run the tests. Uh, Cypress saves you a video of a test run. It takes screenshot on the failure. You have those test results, right? All those test artifacts. Well, what happens to them? Well, if you are an individual developer or a small team, you can just store those test artifacts on your CI yourself, on your Jenkins box. And if something fails, you can just look at the, those test artifacts, like download the video, watch it you know, on your machine, understand why the test failed, fix it, and so on. Absolutely fine. But imagine you're a business and you're running hundreds of tests, right? Like all the test artifact management, looking at videos, looking at screenshots, trying to understand which test is failing is difficult, right? So then we decide, why don't we build a business storing those test artifacts and allowing to easily view them, allowing you to look at the history, allowing you to see the history of a test, which test is flaky, which test is slow, and so on, right? All the things that don't make much sense to small projects, but become hard problems in a large organization. And for large organization, I mean, they can totally do it themselves. Some companies that use Cypress don't pay us a dime because they made their own dashboard where they store the results, look at that. But when you do that, right, you have to think, money, an hour of engineering time 
to just maintain the dashboard, right? Like, like if you spend one hour per week just maintaining or updating the dependency or redeploying the dashboard, one hour a week, right, four times a month, probably is at least $150, $200. Just like light maintenance, not even writing it, just maintaining it. And so what happens? Well, our cheapest price for storing your test artifacts and maintaining all that, so you don't have to do it, is $99. If you record more, it's $199, so $200, and then $300. And then there are custom plans for large enterprise. It, it's no-brainer. If you're a large organization and you want everyone to just see the test results whenever they want to, see, understand the test history, understand which tests are failing, right? No-brainer is to pay us. And that's how we make money. And that's what allowed to actually you know, take those earnings and put them into working on open source full time. Because what happened before was really interesting. So we tried for a while to survive not by having like a dashboard, but instead providing like training and support, right? Which is how many open source projects try to survive. And what happened there was really interesting. We were swamped. Like every large project, we have so many issues, right? Because we used across every operating system, every CI provider, every hosting solution, every you know web framework and library, and you name it. And so obviously there are problems, and we're trying to add features, but we could not. Half of the time, we were supporting existing customers, right? Which prevented us from having even time to actually solve a problem in the first place for everyone. And so for us, moving away from private support towards subscription model where we do like test storage and dashboard for businesses allowed to put money into solving everyone's problems, right, in the test runner itself. So I think it's a really, really good balance, which we were lucky to discover. And, um, you know, going back to Chris, the first paid feature that actually allowed us to survive, right, that actually became why people wanted to pay money was not even the test artifacts in the video it was parallelization like running tests in parallel so imagine you have many tests if you run them one by one you open a browser you load things like it takes time so once you you have a, a even small set of end-to-end -end tests imagine you waiting for half an hour for all of them to finish on a single uh, continuous integration box so one night i was sitting around Playing with Mocha, because I love writing wrappers around Mocha, like to randomize order of tests, the load balance, or repeat the same test to figure out flake. So I was playing with Mocha, and I was thinking, how cool would it be to have like a little Mocha just sitting somewhere on the internet, waiting, like already running, just waiting for test to run, right? So you don't have to spin the new thing. You just, hey, test this test, like run it, like you're already there. And then when you finish, come back, I'll give you a second test to run. Like, kind of like little mocha worker. And that was a success, right? Like this nighttime experiment. And then we decided, well, Cypress is nothing but literally mocha engine with controlling the browser. So we've written this way of running Cypress with API that knows all the tests. So every time Cypress finishes a spec, it goes back and says, do you have another spec for me to run? And the API can say, yeah, here's the next one. And when you're done, come back to me. 
So each CI machine doesn't just run all 30 like spec files. Instead, each CI machine goes to the API and says, I'm about to run 30 specs, or should I do something else? And our API says, hey, wait, there are 10 machines already joining this group for this particular test run. I already gave nine jobs, nine different spec files to nine machines. You're number 10, you run number 10 spec. And we all keep this history, right, of test runs so we can optimize the order so it's optimal. But it all became just like as an experiment around like spinning and running tests as fast as possible. And that became real sellable feature, right? Because, you know, people pay for it. It makes sense for organization with lots of spec files to, to run them faster so the developers don't wait for it. And again, test artifact storage and faster test runs, all for $99 a month, sign me up. <laughs> like, I don't even want to discuss it, right? Like, it, it makes such a good business sense. And, and I'll tell you more. So in previous organization where I actually use Cypress, we could not use the dashboard, like external services. Like we were all about finance, so we kept everything in-house hosted our GitLab in GitLab CI and everything. So we we actually manage all this parallelization ourselves. Like every time you commit code, it would regenerate the CI file so that we spin our own boxes. Like, and I mean, we open source with, as a tool, you know, feel free to use it. But then I was like, why? Like, why would I manage that? I can, I can just concentrate on what I'm doing best and not manage my CI server or my parallelization or my test artifacts. So. In conclusion, right, here's my advice to anyone trying to make a business out of open source. As an individual contributor, you can probably support your project a little bit by providing private trainings, workshops, right? Maybe a support, right? And a good example of that is the maintainer of Redis, right? Just supports one company, gets paid a lot of money, and invests in open source work. But I think it only works for maybe one developer at a time for smaller projects. As soon as you have a group of people, right, you need something else, right? Not just support, but additional services. So if you're working on something, maybe you, like uh, a good example would be Ghost, a blog, ed you know, editing, right? Open source project, but they host it for you, so you don't have to do anything, and so you pay for that. So they provide extra service on top of it. If you can provide the service that makes sense for a company using your open source project, like completely complementary, right? Not like light versus full version, but instead saying, if your company loves this tool, like really loves it, uses it a lot, well, you will hit this problem and then we can provide solution to that. So that all the individual users, you know, smaller, you know, plan users, can still do everything for free. And yet the companies who really, really are a big fan, they kind of self-select by being big fans, they can come back and say, hey, I have this hundred things now, what can I do, right? And you say, well, we came up with a solution for this particular need. We know you love us because you have thousand tests. So for a thousand tests, here's the thing. So I think we are super lucky because we were sitting around a table well, it probably was virtual table back in the day. And we're like, we know we had hit a home run with Cypress Test Runner, but we need to hit a second home run with like 
the dashboard, right? What value can it provide to actually justify our existence and paying for the whole team? And, and that was really scary, right? We literally were like, well, open source it. What can we do in the meanwhile? Like it, it wasn't like we knew what we will do with a dashboard, right? Parallelization came as an idea later. So it was really scary, but I'm, I'm glad we kind of got lucky with it, right? That's very cool, Lev. I mean, I think Apollo, Gatsby, and other like, other good examples yep. of that, like, you know, open source around, you know, and having services seems like a very good model. Um, but I think Cypress wasn't always open source, right? And I think that's kind of your, maybe one of your other claims to fame was helping Cypress actually get open source. Like you joined the company and then six months later, yeah. like I think the first, wasn't the first thing that you worked on was like, okay, I'm now VP of engineering at Cypress. So let's work on open sourcing Cypress. Like, so like, what was that journey like for you? And like, what were the challenges of like going from a closed source to open source? Like I, you know, I can't even imagine like how much work that was. And it, it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Like really? Okay. You don't have to like the whole and being embarrassed about your code, I think is another like barrier to entry. That, that I didn't say that was true. Right. That was absolutely true. So, uh, when I joined, like we talked with Brian Mann for a long, like for a year, right? We we chatted about features and so on until I finally joined, and we had like this idea. But it was his idea to open source, but that's the only way to. He had to convince like other people in the company. Uh, but we had this bunch of packages that had to be assembled into the final test runner. So the six months that I was there, we were cleaning up code like crazy, bringing everything into one. Mono repo, you can call it, right? Getting the CI to build not on our machine, like one off, right? But actually setting up everything to be, you know, Linux CI, Windows CI. That was actually my probably first big project was to, to get Cypress to actually work on Windows, right? Because it didn't work before. Getting like Mac OS built on CI with sign, you know, code signing and everything. So just getting that parts all together, cleaning it up making sure the tests happen and pass and then releasing it because now all of a sudden, right, the open source brings so many eyes that look at your project differently. You cannot you know, fool them anymore. Everyone can look at that. And when everyone discovered that we wrote the whole thing in CoffeeScript, I mean, people were upset. There was a mob outside our doors, right? People were ready to burn Atlanta for the second time. <laughs> <laughs> Why were they so upset? Well, CoffeeScript now gets this, um, you know, kind of bad rap. Yeah. But Cypress was started six years ago when there was no JavaScript ES5 or ES6, right? There was nothing. The JavaScript was in awful shape. And CoffeeScript was much better. And it's amazing. It's the same person who has written CoffeeScript and Backbone and Underscore, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the top three projects, I think, projects from probably mostly used five, seven years ago, were all one person. It's incredible. And we used all of them, right, at, at Cypress. So uh, just trying to get the code into one cohesive shape with one good build that was green most of the time. We still haven't sold that, but it's okay. <laughs> and, and just getting it releasable and not be ashamed like was a huge undertaking. But, you know, we, we got through it. Yeah, and I'm seeing 210 contributors to the core project so far and dozens and dozens of plugins and packages. So like you made a good choice, right? 
You got some yeah. wind behind your wind behind your uh, steam or sales. But, am I saying it right? Sales. Wind behind your wind. Yeah, wind behind your sales. So <laughs> sales behind, behind our sales. Sales behind your sales. Not to be conf- yeah, not to be confused with sales JS. <laughs> yes. Thank you. It's, it's a good project. I I really enjoy working on it. Our contributors are awesome, internal, external, and just the reception. Right. We we really have a, a Slack channel with like awesome tweets with people. When a person tweets that we've made testing fun and how much we enjoy the process, we're like, that's, that's why. That's why we're doing it. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions so you can take your project to the next level. Simplify your life with Linode's Linux VMs to develop, deploy, and scale your applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for our listeners. You can find all the details at linode.com changelog, or if you're not at your desk, just text changelog to 474747 and get instant access to that 100 bucks. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7, 365 human support with no tiers or handoffs, regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use that $100 credit on S3-compatible object storage, manage Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com changelog and click on the Create Free Account button to get started, or just text changelog to 474747. Get started today on Linode. One of the intimidating things about testing is that when people talk about it, there's lots of different kinds of tests that get thrown around. There's unit tests, there's acceptance tests, there's end-to-end tests, there's system tests, there's integration tests. A lot of these are different things. Many are same different words to describe the same kind of thing. And so maybe a, a way that you can help people understand better testing, like the ecosystem, uh, Gleb, is help to describe the different kinds of tests. We know you describe Cypress as end-to-end testing, and that's where you drive the entire browser like front and to back, make sure it all works exactly the way that you'd expect. But that's not the only kind of testing there is. So give the people an explainer on the different test types. So typically people say that testing is like a pyramid, right? So imagine a pyramid like uh, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. So at the bottom, you have very, very wide layer of unit tests and unit tests are just the smallest piece of code imagine you write a function that adds the numbers so you write a test if i call that function with arguments two and three do i get five and every language under the sun has a unit testing framework right because it's so easy just load a piece of code run it check the result that you get make sure it's what you expect so that's why the bottom of a pyramid is usually very very wide because it's easy to just write hundreds of tests to exercise all your little components. And when you move higher up in a pyramid, and now you're trying to put units of code together, right? Maybe you're trying to use a to-do class that represents something and that uses some other pieces of code, right? You're now mostly trying to see if a couple of units of code work together, how they integrate. And that's where you discover you know, parts where the backend team 
And the front-end team actually did not communicate very well. And so my module doesn't work very well with another module, right? And then at the very top of a pyramid, you have end-to-end tests. And end-to-end tests is when you're trying to run the whole thing, right? And user would. So for example, you open a website in your browser and you navigate and you like work with your web application and you check if it updates the page correctly, if it calls the backend correctly. The top of a pyramid is usually very, very sharp. And that's because you don't, you're not supposed to write many end-to-end tests. And I think this is absolute thinking nowadays because why was it hard to write end-to-end tests? Was because, well, it was hard to install the end-to-end test runner. It was finicky. It was flaky. The tests were flaky and didn't give you much confidence. So you actually spend more time maintaining those end-to-end tests than you would actually spend time writing your web application. So many people say, no, write many, many unit tests, write many uh, integration tests, but just a few end-to-end tests, maybe just as a sanity. And when we look at what Cypress allows you to do, which is write many useful and no or very little flake tests, then you want to write more end-to-end tests, right? Like you want to make the pyramid like almost as a rectangular or maybe as a pizza slice where you have a lot of end-to-end tests and few unit tests. And it, it goes back to efficiency. So if you exercise, a te- like if you test a small single function that adds to numbers, well, yeah, the test is easy, it's fast, but it really only, only hits that particular function, right? But your web app is large and potential sources of errors are not just logical errors in your functions, it's integration, assumptions, right? It's your bundler, it's your transpiler, it's your code deployment, it's your backend server, it's your DNS configuration, it's all the environment variables that you have to set correctly in the backend and the frontend and all the little internet stuff in between, right? And the modern browser, which is awfully, awfully complicated machine where your assumptions that it will execute this add to numbers together completely is different from what the end thing will do. So when you think about like what's the effectiveness or how much do you actually exercise, how many potential errors can you find? Well, the unit test can find you a few logical errors, right? Which is great. I, I write unit tests for that all the time. But all possible sources of error are discovered by end-to-end tests. If you can test the site you just deployed and go through the main user story, just like a human user would do later on, and if that works well, the chances are when the real user goes for the same you know, thing, it will be successful. So for us, the end-to-end test should be the primary focus. So if we kind of flip the pyramid and we make the top wider and wider and we'll write more and more end-to-end tests because they're effective and we make it almost like a pizza slice where we write more end-to-end tests or if we start with end-to-end tests, it makes sense. And what happens recently? Well, a functional tester or test runner like Cypress, it finds a text, clicks on the button, right? Does all those things. But it only verifies that the application works. It doesn't verify that the application looks good, right? And we 
We all are humans. We like pretty things. So we like styles. Some people even add CSS to their apps. I don't know why, but it's crazy. So they want, once they add CSS and they do the styling, right, to make sure the app looks the same and they don't accidentally break it. Amal, you wanna you wanna interject yeah. something? Well, I was <laughs> gonna just say, you know, one of the most popular websites in the world. Well, two, I would, I, they have really uh, gone very CSS light. You know, I would say Craigslist and yeah. uh, Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. you, yeah. Know? Yeah. you know, there's something about basic web. You know, right. I, I gotta say, like as much as I am a huge fan of CSS and beautiful design. There's like my my brain is like equally happy when I see basic websites that Absolutely. are functional and and very fast. Absolutely, you know what I mean, it's just it's just like what the web was designed to do for better or worse. You know, yeah. that's like Tim Berners Lee was like looking to share some links and text, and like that's what the web is like. Quite frankly, really good yeah. at. It kind of sucks at everything else. Like CSS is just like maybe not the you know the way we manage designing websites and creating like you know these visual designs like if you look at other programming like paradigms whether it's game game engines or you know it's just the way they manage styling is so much better than what we have to work with in the web because you know we're just making these three things kind of work together and they're not necessarily very intuitive sorry i had to go i had to i had to go on a tangent there i'm sorry <laughs> um gleb speaking yeah. of css so you were talking about okay so because Cypress runs in a browser and it eliminates a uh, like a category of test flake. Um, and so that's cool. And so in the past when we've written end-to-end -end tests in the browser and other than the test flake, you know, what uh, we have found is they're very, these end-to-end -end tests are extremely brittle because of CSS because of the H, the structure of the DOM and your 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 HTML tags and all that stuff, and if you have those end-to-end -end tests that assume the structure looks a certain way, or if you're using styles that you assume are going to always be there, and some designer comes along and changes things, well, your tests end up breaking. And so, do you have any um, advice, or, or maybe is is there something Cypress does to avoid some of that? churn in these end-to-end -end tests? Absolutely, Chris. We at Cypress, we put a lot of thought in our documentation, right? We're trying to explain how Cypress commands work in excruciating details. And we also have a bunch of best practices for writing end-to-end -end tests. And one of the practices is how do you even select the elements that you want to interact from your test? And we say, well, don't use CSS styles because they're used for styling and can change, like you said. Don't use you know, deep nested selectors because that assumes the whole structure will never change. So we advocate for using specific data attributes like data test ID for selecting the element, right? So that its purpose is clear and you don't accidentally change it. You only change it when you want to change it for real. Another thing that is really popular nowadays is um, a family of libraries called testing library, right? Where we say, don't test the implementation, test the interface, but allows you, for example, you to select elements by label, right? Which is so useful inside the forms or by aria role, right? So where you don't actually depend on the style or the structure, but instead you 
tie your task to the elements by their role. And, and that's a lot less brittle. Let me go a little bit to the styling of things. So if we select elements and you work with them and you check the number of items, the, the CSS can still change, right? And, and then the application will look like you know crap and users will be unhappy and nobody will gonna buy anything from your, for your website. So Cypress is just a functional test runner. It doesn't care about CSS. And it's very hard to write all the assertions saying oh, the color of this element should be blue and the border radius should be two, right? Like it's impossible. So instead, what people do, because it's a real browser, you can take and generate a screenshot of your page or part of it. And then you can do visual testing. So you save a screenshot and it becomes like a baseline or a master image. And the next time you run the test, you take another screenshot and then you compare it pixel by pixel with your baseline image. And you store those baseline images with your source code, right, in your repository. And computers are really good at comparing images pixel by pixel and they'll tell you, oh, it used to be blue. Well, a computer doesn't have a concept of blue, but it says it used to be this, now it's different color, and here's the region where it changed. And then you can say, did I mean to change the CSS here? Like, why is it no longer blue and now red? So the visual testing, to me, it's such an effective tool paired with a full end-to-end -end test where you can literally load application, take a screenshot. Now you know it will never change, right? Like, accidentally. Do something, the application reacts, changes the layout, new DOM elements appear, then you take another screenshot. Boom, now you tie it so close, any visual change, any CSS, SVG, anything will change the pixels and you will know that you accidentally broke the styling and you know that accidentally you made Craigslist look like Reddit and you're like, no, 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 revert it, revert it, revert it, right? So to me, the most useful right now pyramid is a pyramid that's wholly end-to-end -end functional and visual tests, that's it. And then I can track code coverage, right? Using like instrumenting my application code the end-to-end -end tests that like go through the whole flow, like a real user, are so effective at code coverage, right? People say, well, hit 80% of your code, right? Like cover it. And, you, and I'm usually say, well, because end-to-end -end tests exercise the whole application, a single test can cover most of it if it goes through the whole user story. And then you look at the lines that not covered and you write end-to-end -end tests for those edge cases. And if you cannot, reach those lines, because there could be edge cases that are unreachable through a well-designed interface, then you write end-to-end -end tests, API tests, and component tests, and hit those lines so you know that those components and unit tests of code work as well. But it's, it's, it becomes like a pyramid of end-to-end -end tests and little like triangles for other types of tests. And to me, it looks like a crab because it's a big kind of helmet shell and little uh, armored legs under it. But it's all about end-to-end -end tests, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I want to shout out that this is a strategy we've actually adopted on our team as well, like, you know, working on trying to get it adopted more widely. But essentially, I want to kind of default to using end-to-end -end tests for all of my happy paths and some error paths, error paths specifically that have visual feedback, and then kind of using unit tests to kind of cover the edge cases since like we really don't need to write like a unit like an end-to-end -end test for every single edge case, 
especially because with end-to-end tests, like you're not going to get anything more than 100% coverage on a, on a single path. So if you're writing multiple tests that cover the same path, you're, it's a little bit wasteful, especially like processing time. So really like it's a very good kind of shift to kind of actually write end-to-end tests for like as your default and then unit tests for your edge cases and error handling uh, things that don't make sense in an end-to-end test. And that way, you know, and, you, and using the coverage reports, you can actually look to see like, what are you covered for with your end-to-end tests? What are you covered for with your unit tests? And also we, like, we have a combined report of like our end-to-end tests and unit tests using like, some plugins uh, from Cypress. So that's nice. You can actually, you can see the combined number as well. And, you know, so it's just a really great shift. And, and I've changed my mind on this because Gleb knows I was like, Miss unit test 3000. <laughs> I mean, I'm still very pro unit testing, but for UI, I really think that's the way to go, you know? And server code is a different story, but uh, I think, you know, unit tests are really, really still very useful in many yeah. ways. Um, I but, used to be a unit uh, test all the things, and now I'm more like a unit test the things that are scary or strange as I'm writing them. And I'm like, this is kind of weird. And that usually helps me refactor it a little bit and make it less scary or strange, at which point the test becomes somewhat obsolete, but they've served their purpose. But uh, I've never done end-to-end testing in some sort of 100% capacity. Gleb, does Cypress provide you that code coverage then via the dashboard, or how are you getting the coverage out when you're running Cypress as a test runner? So when you run Cypress, it's up to you to instrument your application code and we give examples for everything pretty much it comes down to inserting like a Babel Istanbul plugin in your bundling pipeline and then your application code will be instrumented and I've written Cypress code coverage plugin so when you run Cypress you just include that plugin with your test setup and our plugin takes care of everything it will collect all the code coverage information it will merge everything into one report and you get reports in variety of formats like static reports, like HTML report where you can see every code line. You can also send the reports we generate to any third-party code, code coverage service like CodeCov, CoverRolls, and then see it. And then those services usually comment, uh, comment on your pull request saying code coverage dropped or remained the same or increased. And Amal, you call yourself a senior engineer and you're not hitting 200% code coverage it's a shame. Yeah, shame. for shame. It's a new. I mean, it's a shame that yeah, it's just like you know, I haven't joined the world of I would say over optimizing. <laughs> the real senior engineers go for one hundred and ten percent coverage. You know, you got to give one hundred and ten percent. Yeah, one hundred ten, three hundred and ten percent, Jared. Like that's our language. You know, as as software engineers, people love to over engineer, and I'm guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. It's like a bias that we have to constantly fight right so gleb before we close this this show out i'm curious like ui testing has been extremely i would say it's had a very checkered path right like it's very like these we've shifted towards using components and you know you have things like jsx and uh you know even in the angular world view world they're all a little different like i I feel like it's never we've never had a good story for unit testing i feel like things for me kind of peaked with enzyme and, that, and then now you have this React testing library, which, you know, is, I would say, like, has some good principles, but really, like, it misses the mark for me on some things, like, for example, server-side rendering support and also just 
you know, like there's a lot of things that you're not testing by just testing the React output. It's like just a lot of interactions with state and props, which is like what I'm more actually interested in testing because I'm not interested in testing React. I'm interested in testing my implementation and contracts with React. And so, you know, it, we're not like, it's problematic. And so I'm just curious, like, can Cypress be used to just test components? Like, is that a thing that, like, right? Is that, is that like, can, can we use Cypress to, like, actually pass on this responsibility mm -hmm. of, like, unit testing, quote unquote, unit testing our components? Amal, in a world of softballs, this is the best pitch softball. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for bringing it up. So um, here's the thing. We think that Cypress for end-to-end -end tests noticed that the technical problem was not, you know, like Selenium not being able to control the browser, but the test being outside of where we're running, leading to flake. When I was looking at component tests two years ago, and I was looking at Cypress, and I was like, well, why are we even using Jest or Mocha or Ava with Enzyme? But we are rendering components in a terminal in Node.js with JS DOM emulation. That's not a real browser. That, that's exactly that's yeah. one of the, my problems with React testing library. Like you can't like JS, you can't rely in general. Like not yeah. just the React testing library, but in general testing UI inside of Node. Like it's not actually you're not yeah. actually testing it for reals. Exactly. You know? There are differences, and so you're like, you know, so yeah. I mean, Fred Schott uh, from Pika is also like, he's got some interesting work in this like space as well, but yeah. When I noticed that, I was like, Gleb, you got it. The components are not pieces of code, right? Are not just markup. The components, let's say React, Vue, Angular, you name it. The components are mini web applications, right? Because you can literally do like React render component and then just have like your component widget. So when I thought about that, the natural thing was to write a little adapter. So right now, Cypress just visits the URL. Doesn't care about your framework, doesn't care about anything, just the DOM and runs it. So with frameworks, I decided, okay, well, why don't I write a React adapter? So I call the Cypress React unit test because it's like the component test, uh, literally unit testing the component. So you load that, and instead of enzyme or React testing library mount, that mount actually takes that component and runs it as a real mini web application inside the browser that Cypress controls. And after that, you can use all Cypress commands. So then you see your component, how it looks in real life. It renders all its children components and inter interacts with it the same way as it would do in normal thing. So literally, if your app is a tree of components, you can take any node in the tree render it by itself, test it fully, then go to the next level up the tree, set up your data, render the component, and interact with it using normal Cypress commands. So if you know Cypress, you can do component testing. And I'm happy to report that this will become a core feature of Cypress. It's already like under experimental flag, but we'll turn off experimental flag pretty soon. We're just finishing some bundling things because now we have to bundle the components correctly. It's unbelievable experience. So I'm so happy that I proposed this idea two and a half years ago. Finally, we made it all the way through. So we'll start with official support for Vue and React, but there are adapters that I've written for every major framework and some minor ones. 
And when you see your component, all the styles render. Uh, if you compare it with Jest, where, you, for example, if a component has pointer none style, just happily clicks on it because it's not a real browser in Jest DOM, but the real browser will not let you click, right? So you see yeah, all that yeah. complexity right there. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a game changer. And like, you're going to have to come back on the show and we're going to have to talk about this because this is like a game changer for like UI UI testing. Um, I also think like it, it's very in line with component driven design, yes. right? So, you know, you should in theory be able to render your components in Storybook if they're visual, right? They're rendering yes. components. And it kind of both like using that in, like implementation of uh, component driven design. And by the way, we'll we'll link what component driven design is in in the show notes, as well as maybe Gleb, can you give us the I'll, the GitHub uh, I'll give flag? You all so the links. Can play, yes. Yeah, yeah, we'll get lots of links so people can can play around with this before it, it launches. But um, component driven design is nice because it like you you make sure that your stuff works in isolation. Right. You know, you make sure that your component is actually a component, right? It, it can. It has inputs and outputs, and it's not dependent on the wider app. Like you, you obviously you can set the context, but anyway. So this is just, I think this is a great arc for front end development, and I'm just so happy that like, yeah, what a great time to be alive. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's let's just live. yeah, <laughs> we can end it on that high note. There is no JavaScript <laughs> fatigue. There is only JavaScript party. That's right. I mean, exactly. I'm just saying, I this is very exciting. Anyways, so where can people find you on the internet, Gleb? How can they connect with you? Uh, the easiest probably is Gleb, G-L-E-B dot dev dot D-E-V. I got this top level domain. As soon as it came out, Gleb dot dev or Bakhmutov. You know, it's all leads. Just, <laughs> just search for testing and you'll find me. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're happy to have you on the show today, Gleb. So much interesting stuff. Very cool things coming very soon for the JavaScript party. You know we're always down for that. Listeners, all the links to all the things are in your show notes, so you know where to go for the easy clickings. That's our show. We'll talk to you again next week. Well, Front End Feud was a big hit, so we're doing it again. This time, we'll be playing our Family Feud-inspired game show at HalfStackConf on October 30th. What else will you see at HalfStack? You'll see people using the web to create stuff like music, art, VR, robots, poetry, comedy, cool stuff like that. Get your tickets at HalfStackConf.com. Thanks to Amel, Chris, and our special guest, Gleb, for the awesome conversation. To the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder for all of our beats. To our longtime sponsors, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. And thanks to you for listening. We appreciate you spending your time with us. Stay tuned for next week as we turn our focus to some hot new tech and some old tech, too. how it works is like there's a, a server and it it, it um, acts as a reporter. Amal, you might be broken. Your face is broken. And um, so it, you know, it uh, it bundles all this crap up and like sends all the code to the browser. Your tests run in the browser 
and um, then there's like a, I think there's a web socket that communicates back to the server and the server dumps the um, report, you know, the, the test results into your console. So Karma does run stuff in a browser, but I don't really see people trying to use Karma for these types of, well, that's, that's not true. There's, um, what's that, the Google one, uh, Protractor. Protractor. Right. right, and Protractor. That was po popularized with Angular, I think, right? Right, and I guess it, I don't know, it fell out of favor, I don't know, maybe it didn't work very well or something, or maybe it was too Angular specific. But, I mean, that seemed like it's similar to Cypress in that it all runs, all the, all the tests, all the code run in a browser. But, uh, I, you know, I tried to use Protractor and the, the API kind of was not so fun. I, I don't know, Chris, it might, it might be. I don't remember, I used Karma a long time ago, back when it was called Testacular. Oh yeah, yes. I remember that. Yeah. Such a fortunate name. Not they, the best they name. They changed that name, yeah. <laughs> Testicular is what I keep thinking That's what about. everybody thought My of. My goodness. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, well, I think geez. they were going for Spectacular, right? Test plus Spectacular, yes. but they just missed yes. the mark really badly. Well, none of them were native for English speaker, right? So they oh, thought they were very funny. So that plays a difference, yeah. Although I wouldn't put it past some of us Americans <laughs> to make the exact same mistake, even with, you know, working knowledge of the mm. language. You want, you want to hear something funny? I use two words incorrectly all the time. Well, I'm sure I use way more than two, but two that I have recently been informed of by people. I use the word flushed out a lot, mm. like, but it's really fleshed out. Flesh out. Not flushed out. Versus flush out. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. E versus U and then colates versus, you know, like... Colace. You know, the split colace versus colate. Like, there's a spelling. I don't even difference. know that word. Colace? Colace, yeah. Like, bring together. Coalesce. You know. Co like, Co coalesce. Coalesce. Yes. Co Co coalesce. Okay, I'm going to stop. What's the real word? Well, I'm trying swear. to figure out what the real word is. Oh, I think it's, 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 can we collate? Like, oh, like collate. I, I, what I'm trying to, yeah, what I'm trying to say is, like, gather. Right. And I, I, I think coalesce is kind spelling. of that. Uh, coalesce. Or maybe that's like slightly to modify or to, to smooth into something else. <laughs> Let me look that up. Coalesce. Does anybody know what that word means? It means, yeah, come together to form one mass or whole. So that's coalesce. Yeah, yes. coalesce. And, it's, and then I, but collate. I use collace. I use collate when I mean coalesce. Collate means collect and combine in proper order. Okay, so maybe maybe I need, maybe they, they both should just be combined in one they mean very similar things. There you go. Exactly. Confused. We need good dictionary pruning. <laughs> Some pruning. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah. I think we can, we can throw it out. You know, like a, a, Any word that hasn't been used on Twitter in the past 200 like days is in English at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'd use Twitter as like the <laughs> reference of the world zeitgeist. Just, There's just, a, but I, I understand saying. the sentiment, but I think it's a flawed implementation <laughs> if you're basing everything off of Twitter. Well, I think we're going to start communicating in like GIFs and Emojis and grunts producing. Start. I think, like, <laughs> start. You're just grabbing my so, prime communication yeah. mechanism. You're like, uh, hello. 